I am on a mission, rather a path to discovering the connections of the mind, body, and spirit as it's linked to social justice work. Particularly, I am interested in the spiritual aspect of social justice work. Each episode, I will talk with scholars in various fields who are committed to social justice and social change to learn more about how they see spirituality connected to the commitment of justice and change. I am your host, Dr. Valen S. Jordan, diversity and social justice educator, and this is 824. My friend Nikki of the Yoga Noir Project is the only other Black woman yoga instructor I'm connected to, and honestly, the only other Black yoga instructor I'm connected to. And besides her, it's not very often I get to have just an honest and raw conversation with a Black yoga instructor, and for that matter, a Black woman yoga instructor until now. I had the pleasure of interviewing Diane Bondi, author of the book Yoga for Everyone and the leader of the Yoga for All movement. Listen in to part one of my interview with Diane Bondi. Welcome to this episode of 824. I am your host, Dr. Valen S. Jordan, and today I am delighted and over the moon to have of Ms. Diane Bondi here with me today, the author of the best-selling book, Yoga for Everyone, the incredible yoga instructor, incredibly renowned yoga international woman phenom. Like, I am just too over the moon to have you here with me today. Um, So let's just jump into this. Thank you, Dr. Jordan. I'm very grateful to be here. Thank you for inviting me on to your podcast. Um, I'm a big fan of your work. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. So, well, we are in a really incredible moment in history, moment in time. Mm -hmm. And I know that you do a lot of speaking engagements with regards to racial justice, social justice. And so I want to hear a bit more about what that work has looked like for you in the Mm -hmm. yoga community. Um, Maybe even thinking about it with regards to the yoga industry. Mm. We'll just, we'll start there. Should we just jump in? Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah. I didn't always uh, intend for my yoga practice to be about social justice. Actually, I never intended it for that. Um, I just went into a yoga studio and was treated so poorly that I was just like, okay, what's going on? And then I always, like my, my mother taught me yoga when I was a child. So I've been practicing my entire life. I've been practicing for about 47 years. And she taught me when I was when I was three with this book that she had. And uh, she was a new immigrant to Canada. She didn't have a lot of uh, tools or skills to manage, you know, either her, her movement uh, practice or how to manage this brand new world where she was clearly in the minority. So she came from somewhere that she was in the majority and came to a place where she was in the minority. And she needed some tools to help her navigate her life. So that's why she picked up yoga. And she taught it to me because I was a precocious three-year-old and I wanted to know what my mother was doing and I wanted to be a part of what my mother was doing. So she really taught it to me then. And I always kind of had it running in the background of my life. It was always something I went to when I felt stressed 
or I needed a little bit of movement, or I needed to reconnect with my breath, or I needed to get grounded. At the time, I didn't know that's what I was doing with the practice, but as I look back on it, you know, introspectively, that's what I was doing with the practice. And um, about three, three weeks, four weeks postpartum, maybe it was closer to six, I decided that I needed to get out of my house because I had a new baby and I was overwhelmed by that. And my partner said to me, why don't you go take a yoga class outside of the house? Like, it'll be quiet. You won't be distracted. I'm here. I'm here with the baby. Don't worry. Go have your moment. So I thought, I, you know, I wasn't going to ask twice. I like fled out of the house because I just needed to get back to me. And I stepped into a yoga studio and I was met with disbelief. I was met with body shaming. I was met with a number of different um microaggressions including like the karma classes on friday like i couldn't afford to be here like so many things and so if that had been my first experience of yoga i certainly wouldn't have gone back but at this point i had been practicing most of my life and i knew it wasn't this i knew this was just how i moved through the world as a black woman i'm going to get pushback on anything that people want to give me pushback on so i took the class and because i'm not an ashtanga an ashtanga or an ashtangi um, practitioner i didn't know the flow because i had been doing you know just kind of whatever kind of yoga i was doing and uh the teacher was very irritated that i was disrupting her class because she perceived that i couldn't keep up and you know she was hmm. making all these comments to me about you know not to me just general comments to the class that could only really be about me because i was the only person in there that wasn't doing what she thought i should be doing and I was the only person of color in there. So it was pretty obvious to me, as, as always in most yoga classes, like Google, still to this day, all these years later, 15 years later. Um, so I was just like, okay, fine. I took the class and I thought, I am never coming back to the studio. And you know what we do as black women? When we aren't given a seat at the table, we pull up our own table and we pull up our own seat. So I went and opened my own yoga sit, studio. We throw shade. Like we do that too. We do that too. But we also take action. That's one thing I'm so proud of as a woman of African descent, as a woman who is part of the greater Black Woman Collective, is that we usually are like, see if there's a problem. We may throw shade for a while, but then we always take action. This is what mm -hmm. I find. This has been my experience. These are the women who surround me. So I opened my own yoga studio. So I go from me like, oh, is that how you're going to treat me? Well, bam, I'm going to go up the street. I'm going to open a studio and I'm going to do it my way. And that's how I kind of became this accidental activist because I never wanted anybody else to have to experience that. And because that was the most popular studio in town, I wanted people to have an alternative to that experience. So I came home from the class and I told my husband I wasn't going back to work after Matt leave. I was going to open a yoga studio. And he was like, wait, what? Like you would just go <laughs> do a yoga class. You come back now, two hours later, and now we're opening a studio. And I'm like, that's how it's going to yep. be. And then that's what, <laughs> that's what happened. <laughs> and I really wanted to use the practice of yoga and the teachings and the way that I learned it, not only to empower people, but specifically to empower people of color to understand that we have the strength within and we can create our own narratives and we can stand up to the system. And what I noticed as a black yoga teacher is I was often the only black yoga teacher owned the only black yoga student, a student in many spaces. I also saw that uh, the teachers who were elevated to yoga celebrities, I call it yoga liberty, that's the term, were always women, specifically white women, who aligned with the current 
beauty narrative. Now that's changed mm. in 15 years, thanks to the Kardashians, but that's another conversation for another day. But, <laughs> um, but held up that, for lack of a better word, that yoga Barbie prototype. And I was here to bust through that prototype and to get yoga to the communities that I wasn't seeing in yoga spaces. So I was really clear about opening a studio in a neighborhood that wouldn't ordinarily have access to that studio and being very visible as a black woman in that community saying, okay, it's not somebody coming in and gentrifying. It's me. It's us. We can come to these spaces and talking to my uh, stylist and saying, hey, there's enough room in the retail area. Can we do a yoga class and then people can get their hair done after? Or, you know, trying to partner with communities of color to figure out how we could get this practice uh, into our communities and also to dispel some of the um, confusion around what yoga really is and how that's mm -hmm. going to align with their own spirituality and all the things that keep yoga, keep black folks out of yoga. So it became my mission to not only offer that in my community, but speak out about it. And I didn't intend to, but I just got in my feelings and felt really angry. And for me, um, like a lot of people I talk to, anger is a really good motivator for me to create change. Right. And we see that as that as that's unfolding now in the world that often within spiritual communities, anger is touted as a negative emotion or even in everyday, you know, in everyday living, we, we think of anger as a negative emotion. But for me, I tell my kids anger is an emotion. It's just an emotion. It's neither negative or positive. It's a human emotion that you have. And it's mm -hmm. what you do with that anger that is meaningful. Anger can be seething and you sit, you can get angry and you can create right. all kinds of healthcare issues around that. Or you can get angry and go, where can I make a change? Where can I step up? Where can I step into my power? And I learned that from actually the yoga practice. So there's so many things that you said um, that are interesting, but I'm going to backtrack and just start with this anger piece. Yes. Um, <laughs> mostly because um, <laughs> We have all of these tropes associated with us as black women, one of uh -huh. which is you're angry, angry. right? The yeah. angry black woman. And in being seen as the angry black woman, then in, in turn, mm -hmm. we are diminished, we're silenced, we're isolated, we're sort of kept from the seat at the table. Um, and that anger for us doesn't get to manifest as being righteous or as a great motivator or that even our anger isn't necessarily anger, but like great frustration. Um, exactly. And, and in that, passion. Um, exactly. Right. Like that it's sort of, um, anger for us is seen as demeaning. Right. But yeah. when, but it has to be re-articulated over and over and over again as to mm -hmm. what this anger even is. Right. And most times it's not even anger, right? Like it's, it's pain and it's frustration that's sort of manifesting itself, um, in a, very loud way sometimes, right? And not necessarily exactly. loud and being aggressive, but like incredibly vocal. Yes. Um, and so I think that is, that's, it's interesting to think about how you're talking through anger and that it sort of led to how you were disrupting the way in which yoga was even conceived or thought about in the community in which you created your studio, right? Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. Like you were disruptive to the flow, right? Like you as a black woman, your black body, your black being, your presence, any mm -hmm. anger or pain or trauma you were carrying around with you was disruptive to that space. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't accepted, it wasn't received, it wasn't being 
massage so that you could heal, you were being pushed out of the space. And then you, in turn, you had to go create something of your own, right? Absolutely. Um, yep. And so it's just interesting to sort of think about how that anger, right, that, that you were feeling, or even just the great frustration that you were feeling led to what you're up to right now. Um, Isn't it interesting? Mm -hmm. And I always say, because you know, you know, the trope that they say that is said to you when you're angry, or you talk about how race has limited your access to certain things. The first thing that that people who are unaware of their privilege or unaware of their whiteness or hasn't even, you know, taken a moment to sit and identify with what it means to be white for them, will say like, Oh, God, Diane, you always play the race card. And you know what I say back? I always say, like the joker in the deck, you may not see it, but it's always in the deck. And if you want to deal me that card, I'm going to play it. So mm -hmm. if they, I'm, I'm okay to be an angry black woman um, because anger has gotten me, uh, which like you say, which is actually translated as passion and frustration and hurt a lot of the time has transformed the way that I look at the world and the way that I want to serve the world. Mm -hmm. And I've had these conversations lots of times with fragile white women <laughs> around, why are you so angry? How could, I thought we were friends. I go, first of all, if you've never been in my house, we ain't friends. <laughs> second of all, <laughs> and second of all, I'm not angry. I'm passionate. And I'm, I'm getting frustrated because you're not hearing me and you're dismissing me. So then I need to remove myself from that space and usually either speak about it or use it as a tool in my speaking engagements so that I can illustrate to people, this is how you're showing up in black spaces. This is how you're showing up for black people. And this needs to stop because you're completely unaware of the continued harm you cause by not, not actually identifying with um, your own limitations or what you see the world as through your super limited focus of whiteness. And so how does that usually go? Uh, yeah, you know. <laughs> I wonder if it's one of those like repeated statements over and over and over Hello. again to the exact yes. same crowds, or yes. if like you find yourself maybe every now and again you have you say it one time and someone goes, "Yeah, I get it, I got it," right? Like, and they can yes. sort of speak into the the white silence of you know. You're making some shit up right now, Diane. That can't possibly be what that can't possibly. I've never seen it. Therefore, it doesn't exist. Um, it has it, it takes people a minute. Do you know what I mean? Or a year or a decade. I usually <laughs> I don't keep repeating it. I say it once. And if you are not receptive to hearing it, I move on. Because there, what I have found is I have this really amazing following of people mostly on my in my social medias and who come to my workshops, who are all the way in. Mm -hmm. This has been this whole thing who are all the way in, who admit to everything. A lot of times are super researched, in some cases, better researched than I am. And I think to myself, okay, great. And then I just focus my attention on these people. And I go, okay, I can't reach these people, but you look like them. So maybe if you could go over there and talk to them, you will have a better outcome. I don't waste my time with, the, with this. I'll say it once and if it's not receptive, I'm like, okay, we're good, I'm moving on. And I've had lots of falling out with fragile white women over it and I'm good with that because I don't have the energy or time to pat you on your back and tell you it's okay and that you're a good person um, yeah. <laughs> when, you're, when you're always throwing your microaggressions at me. You, you need to get that from somebody else because I'm not here for you. Yeah, there's also this thing in thinking about, <laughs> White fragility, one being weaponized, right? And all the then, time. 
And then two, this idea of just like, but I'm a good person, right? Oh. Like I can't possibly be racist. I can't possibly be part of something that is, um, that I participate in a system that is racist, right? Like, cause I'm a good person. I've never done any blatant or explicit acts of racism. And so this doesn't apply to me. And I yes. think what becomes difficult for people in, in learning anything about any ism, whether it be racism, sexism, ableism, heterosexism, is the invisibility to which it functions, right? Yes. And that you are a participant in it when you are not actively trying to deconstruct it. And that you are exactly. a participant in it when you are not actively um, working to be anti whatever the ism is, yes. right? Um, we are implicated in particular systems by very nature of, of being human, right? Like, so, mm -hmm. and thinking about what it means to be able-bodied, and I bring this one up often, especially as a yoga instructor, right? Like, I teach my classes sometimes unconsciously from my position, right? Like, Absolutely. from where and I am, how I move, exactly, right? Like, I don't mm -hmm. do it intentionally to create harm, but it does mm -hmm. create harm when I'm not actively trying to deconstruct the fact that I do it. Um, yes. And I think sometimes when people hear that, they're, they're a little bit more receptive to understanding how racism functions. But at the same time, racism is one of those, is the, probably the only ism that um, can't be that simply understood, right? Because exactly. it is, Layered. it is so finite and yes. it is so woven into so many parts of the function and the interactions of our day-to-day -day lives that it's hard mm -hmm. to even pull it out sometimes. It's true. Right? Um, it's also even hard to pull it out when you, when you don't even realize in some ways you've internalized it. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. And I that's, always say, oh, sorry. Yeah, no, I was going to say, I always say to people, this whole racism is much like rain, right? Like it rained down and we were all outside at the time. So we mm -hmm. all got wet. So we all participate into it, in it knowingly and unknowingly. Even as black people, we buy into white supremacy. Yep. Um, we have been taught it on every front in every moment from the minute we are born by the minute we take our first breath, we inhale into a system that is inherently against us from the beginning. Mm -hmm. And I, and to me, I always am always amazed that we, we thrive as well as we do. Um, that we've managed to get as far as we do because it's everywhere you go. I can't, you and I can't leave the house without rubbing up against it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think, um, I think that for a lot of folks is just unfathomable. Like, how is it possible that you're running into it every day? Um, every day. Or someone saying, I, I read this in an email recently. I didn't experience any race or racism. I grew up in an all white neighborhood. I went to all white schools. My parents never talked about it. So I never experienced race or racism. And I said, well, mm -hmm. I would suggest that you have experienced race and racism mm -hmm. because you grew up in an all white space where you think that race is only present if people of color bring it into your space, right? And so as long as you were under this construction that I bring race with me and that you are absent of it, then you have constructed exactly what whiteness is, right? Exactly. That whiteness sits in as neutral and mm -hmm. it helps to define how everyone else is to participate in, in your spaces. I um, always say that too. It's always like white's the center and the rest of us are orbiting around it, right? I always say that's how people see it and that's not how it is. Right, yeah. 
Um, so to, to keep going with this, then how does this show up in yoga spaces? And I'm asking this knowing that I know how it shows up in yoga spaces, but I'm curious as to what resistance you have seen within the yoga industry, right? So Ooh, while I do yeah. this work as like a professor and I'm a yoga instructor and mm -hmm. it's very different from you being in the yoga industry and you have touch points with so many different people um, mm -hmm. who have, for lack of a better word, co-opted what they think yoga is mm -hmm. and have been busy practicing the asanas, calling it yoga and not mm -hmm. recognizing the ways in which um, they're creating harm by not recognizing the physical realities of the world. Um, I think there's a lot that happens where people try to tease apart the physical realities from spirituality as if the two are not to be uh, together. Like they mm -hmm. try to exclude them as one or the other. Um, and, and that is not, not, not so. <laughs> and yeah, and that's the major way it would show up, right? Like, mm -hmm. I remember being, uh, I'm not on Reddit, my husband's on Reddit, and he had, was on this thread, and he said to me, look at this thread, and the thread said, no social justice warriors here, we're only going to talk about real yoga, and he goes, you should read the comments in here, and so I went through the subreddit thread or whatever, and all people were talking about is how to get into trikonasana, and how to do handstand, and how to, they were only talking about the physical practice, and then I thought to myself how much energy do I want to spend disrupting this whole narrative in here because I'm going to get banned and kicked out anyway when I say to people really is this what you're doing this, do you guys are you guys teachers are you guys just practitioners um but that it was very much that the title was no so social justice warriors here and then I then I wanted to go in there and just like stir the pot because that seems to be my personality and then I thought to myself you have better time I can hear my mom in my back of my head going you have better ways to use your time and I was like you're right mom so let me not you know put that energy elsewhere because there's you're going to just get kicked out of that thread but the places that I, I i always see it is is where yoga studios are situated right like as a yoga studio owner i remember one of the other yoga studio owners saying to me you know if you would move your um if your yoga studio out of that busted neighborhood you would yeah and move it up the street like i don't know three or four miles into the more affluent neighborhood, you'd be making so much money. You know, nobody has a neighbor, nobody has a yoga studio on the hood. And that was pretty much what she had said to me as a white yoga practitioner in a very affluent neighborhood. And, you know, and teaching, let me be clear, her, her tagline for her studio is an authentic representation of yoga as a, as a privileged uh, white woman who's probably never really looked at how she sits in the world or how she sees the world. But that was really interesting to me. That was one comment that I got. They didn't like where my studio was and perhaps white folks weren't coming because of where my studio was. And I'm like, if that's why they're not coming, then I don't want them in the space because they're not actually practicing yoga. I've also noticed in the industry that uh, white but, folks- sorry. Are yeah, if sorry. you're also expecting that my studio is going to grow only if white folks show up, that's problematic in and of itself. In and of is itself. It, it okay. is. Sorry. Yeah, <laughs> just checking, right? Just checking. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And then the other thing I noticed right away that was an affront to me was that white women, even if they had less yoga education than I did, were always elevated to the spot of expert based on an aesthetic. So if they were size two and were hypermobile, they were instantly given, you know, this, this status and all of a sudden they would accumulate these huge followings, even if they were a mediocre yoga teacher. And that was really interesting to me, 
um, as well. They weren't able to adapt the practice to people who might be practicing with a disability or an injury or, you know, in a larger body, but yet they were like at the top of the heap making the most amount of money and, you know, held up as this ideal. And I remember early on in my, uh, my, when I owned my studio space, getting a subscription to Yoga Journal and being like, why am I paying for this? Because that was another place where I didn't see any representation and they were forever as a, as a publication running behind the bus to catch up to progress. I don't understand where their head is at most of the time. So, you know, it was just really interesting. These were all the ways I was seeing that people were being excluded from this practice. If you weren't able-bodied, you weren't welcome. If you weren't cisgendered, you weren't welcome. If you weren't white, you were, maybe you were welcome, but you put your mat over there. And, you know, I often would come into a yoga space and have people move their mats, have people stop talking, have the yoga teacher uh, who was signing me in question my ability. Have you practiced yoga before? Mm -hmm. And not ask somebody else the same kinds of questions, not wanting to offer adjustments to me if they were offering adjustments to other people in the class. As a bigger bodied woman, um, if I taught in a predominantly white space, people would come in and go, are you the teacher? In this surprise look on their face. And I'd be like, yeah, I'm the teacher. Did you have a question? Like you can already tell, you know what I mean? Right. That they don't want to practice with me. And so it goes back to as black people, we now have to be 300 times better at something just to be perceived as competent at it. So it's all, it was always interesting to me that people who had never practiced with me before and had a preconceived notion of me based either on my body or my skin color, usually both, and then had a really good practice with me. We're always so surprised. Like, oh my gosh, that was a really good class. And I'm like, okay. Like, I mean. Yeah. Like, what'd you think you were going to get? I don't understand yeah. why you don't. Yeah. And, and those were the things that I, I found. Even when I ran my teacher training, students who were students in my in my space were questioning my ability to run a teacher training. Like it just, the constant questioning of my credentials was always problematic, you know? Um, and so then I went about my way of getting as many credentials as I could and the most credentials that I could. So that if you looked at me on paper compared to my white counterparts, I had way more education. And so that was that I spent a lot of time and money just seeking validation within the community because my black body wasn't represented anywhere and I think yeah. the first time that I took a class um, with a teacher of color would have been a class with Dr. Gail Parker because she lives uh, I think she's currently sequestered uh, with COVID in California but she, <laughs> she, she lives here in Detroit and that was the first time I had seen a woman of color um, teaching a class. Like I hadn't had an opportunity to take one and that was my first teacher. And then I stalked her from then on out, which, <laughs> you know, now we're friends. I mean, it has I a happy you. ending. <laughs> <laughs> some of what I hear you saying began to resonate with me um, as an academic, right? Is as you were talking about like constantly being in this, I have to have more education. I have to do the thing. I have to do the thing so that I can, I guess, quote unquote, compete, maybe. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. I think in some ways, I, don't, I shouldn't even say think, I have felt that very much too. Um, and moving from, you know, doing a BA to getting a master's to getting a doctorate to doing all sorts of different work in between there and so on and so on and so on and so on. 
And then in, in teaching about social justice and racial justice, diversity, equity, inclusion to pre-service teachers, and the level to which I experience like <laughs> these very loud microaggressions from my white women students. I dare say macroaggressions. <laughs> right. But still feeling like I have to be able to do more. I have to do more. I have to do more. And making mm -hmm. it in, in some ways, sometimes looking at myself going like, am I the issue? And mm -hmm. I said, like, no, no, boo, you're, you're not the issue. You need to stop trying to see yourself as that. Right. Like, mm -hmm. and recognize like, the issue was coming from who you're sitting and teaching all of the time, um, mm -hmm. sort of layering their bullshit on you, <laughs> making you end up feeling as if like you have to keep trying to do more um, yes. so that you can quote unquote compete. Um, so as you were saying, that was, that's what I was re reflecting back on is that I don't think the, the experience is any different for particularly for black women in whatever industry that we're working in, right? That we find ourselves constantly trying to do more, do more, do more, mm -hmm. do more, do more to, so that we can be seen and heard and, and noticed as having the relevant and the valuable information. Um, I wonder- A society sometimes that just wishes we would shut the fuck up. <laughs> Absolutely. And yeah. I wonder if that's why, I don't know if you know this, and, I, and of course I only got the statistic from my favorite favorite comedian, Godfrey. Are you familiar with Godfrey? Yes, He's a yes, big yes, lover yes, of yes. black women and I'm all about Godfrey, who <laughs> quoted a statistic that said that the people who hold the most PhDs in America are black women. Mm -hmm. And the majority of black women who are my friends that I know hold advanced degrees. Mm -hmm. I know three, three, four, five, six doctors who have written books. And I wonder if that's that whole cycle that we're talking about, the constant, I got to do more, I got to do more, I got to do more. And we also live in a, in a country um, that is raised on the mammy um, doctrine, that black women are here to wet nurse everybody's yeah. children and to do everything for everybody. So the expectation is that's what we do. And in a certain way, we have internalized that expectation, right? That is, you know, I saw the first time I watched Gone with the Wind, I think I was seven. And I certainly could recognize um, that role. And I can see how that role plays out today. Um, you say that. And last year at a conference, um, uh, she's the dean at University of South, Southern Florida, South Florida. Her name is Theodora Berry. And she said to me, so <laughs> you need to decide which one of these you're going to be. Are you going to be the Mammy? Are you going to be the Sapphire? Are you going to be the Jezebel? And I was like, I, I don't want to be any of those things. <laughs> and she was like, but know that that's how academia treats Black women. You're either you. the Mammy, yeah. you're either the Sapphire, or you're the Jezebel. And until mm. you decide which one of those you're going to be, or you make the choice to be none of them, right? Like mm -hmm. then academia is just going to layer one on you. Um, mm -hmm. And so it's just interesting to think about that too, that we do have these sort of categories that have been associated with us that um, as long as, if we're not being resistant to them, right, then one of those is being layered, right? Like one of those is being applied to you applied somewhere, to somehow. Um, yeah. yeah. It's, it's interesting to say. Very believe. much so. And it, and it plays out in academia and it, academia and it plays out in the yoga space, mm -hmm. right? When I look at some of what uh, 
teachers, black teachers in particular, and yoga teachers of color. When I think of the work even of Dr. Gail Parker, who was put together, who just wrote a book on using uh, um, restorative yoga to help uh, black folks in particular, but I mean, everybody's going to adopt it, right? It's a book, it's out there. Uh, Heal from racial injustice. Again, she's putting herself in the role of that that nurturer, that taking care of everybody, which is always the role that we're expected to fill. I can't, you must be, we talked about this before, uh, before we got on here about how now in this moment where all of these people are waking from their collective slumber, how many black women have, have been reached out to going, what book should I be reading? What okay. things should I be doing? Uh, I'm a good person, Diane. You know I'm a good person. Can you tell me I'm a good person? Can I can I uh, relieve some of the guilt that I wasn't listening to you before? Can you can you help me? Can I cry on your shoulder? Can I come sit next to you? Can I hold your hand? So that's that's you know that's all being piled and layered on us now. And um, I'm grateful. A couple times I've been just like plain old hiding out, climb under my desk and be done with it. Like I I can't can't help you. <laughs> Trying to help myself. You know what I mean? So. But even That's in that, yeah, like who, who was responding to us, right? Like who was taking care of us? We need to feel exhausted and cry and heal and do all of the things. We can't, we, we have been in the business of, as you said, mothering everybody. So even everybody. as we are doing this fight of like fighting for black men and making sure that people don't fear the black body, the black male body to be clear, right? Like that they don't fear mm -hmm. the black male body that black women are putting themselves on the line and also still being feared, right? But that we are mm -hmm. trying to hold the weight of, of everybody and then also keep society moving. Um, yes! And there, and there is nobody oh, saying what? like, baby girl, please just come here and cry to me, right? Like we are busy yes! either crying to each other or we have, we're sitting in the shower crying by ourselves. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And it, and it's tough. And I, I mean, like, I've been fortunate. I have my allies out there who understand this, who have mm -hmm. done the deep, deep work. And they are reaching out to me saying, send people my way. He, uh, what, one of my friends wrote a response. She's like, this is what you need to do as you're on your email. <laughs> this is your email response. And she wrote it out for me um, to add to my email response. She's like, stop it, stop it, stop it. Even my husband's like, set some boundaries, Diane. Like, okay. I, you know, but we are trained. We are trained to be these people. Or if we don't do this, we feel like nobody else will and we can't be there for, for our families and for the people who are most vulnerable, even though that is us as well. Like it's this right. yeah. vicious cycle, right? Oh, I love that you said that because in some ways it's like it's an embodied learning that I don't even think we are conscious of that we have embodied, right? Yes, um, 100%. Yeah. Hmm. So many things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And that's the saying too, so many things, right? Yeah. So uh, as we talk about this and you sort of using your body and platform to sort of position how we uh, move forward and think about racial justice, I know that uh, you are a, a runner um, yeah. and that you have been committing to running for Ahmad. And so I Every single day. Yeah. And the minute I found out, so I, I ran in, in my thirties, um, before I had children and then I got pregnant with my oldest son and I ran until I was seven months pregnant. And I'm like, you know what, <laughs> this is getting too hard. And I'm tapping out, figuring that I would eventually get back to it. Um, 
after he was born. But then I had two kids in rapid succession because I waited to later in life to have children and my biological clock was ticking. So I was just like, now, 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 right? And so I was pregnant back to back. And then I was, I was right fully in my mother mode and I just couldn't seem to find the time to run and I didn't like it as much. And this year I turned 50. And so I decided, okay. Nuh -uh. Yeah. <laughs> Girl. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Let's talk about black don't crack at another That's time. That's right. Another time. And then, you know, <laughs> and I do yoga, right? And I do yoga. And so I decided for my 50th rotation around the sun, I would get back to my run. I've always had my practice. I've always been consistent with my practice. I've been practicing solid every single day since 2016. And before that, it was more sporadic. And the practice isn't only, as we know, the physical practice. It's the practice of showing up in the world. It's the practice of, you know, figuring out what my dharma is. It's the practice of, you know, educating others. So my yoga has a lot of layers. It's just not the physical practice. But I do get on the mat also seven days a week, even if it's for 10 minutes. And so I decided I was going to take on my running practice. And I forgot that in my 30s, my running practice was aligned so closely with my yoga practice that it was meditative, right? It was this rhythm of me running and watching the world go on around me from this place where I was connected to my breath and my body. So it was very much a yoga practice. And when I got an opportunity, my kids are 15 and 13 now, that I can leave them and re reconnect with my running, I thought, okay, I'm going to sign up for the Detroit Free Press Marathon January 1st, and I'm going to start training January 1st. And I live in Canada. January 1st is cold out here, but I bundled <laughs> up and I went out. And some days I fell off the wagon. And then I got consistent again. I'm like, okay, it's February, get consistent. And then when we became uh, the order to stay in place or shelter in place happened, and we were allowed to still go out and get exercise, I go, I'm, okay, this, I'm dedicating this now. And then I saw the video and I heard about Ahmad and it triggered something in me because the picture of Ahmad that circled around the internet pretty much looked exactly like my brother looked like my uncle, looked like my dad, looked like my son. And that punched me in the gut. And I tried to shield my little black boys, not so little anymore, from these images online, but they both have a phone. So I can't be watching what they're watching every minute of the day. And my youngest son, my 13 year old, came up to me and say, did you see what happened? And I said, did you watch this video? He goes, yeah, watch when he stumbles. And I was like broken. My 13 year old has just seen somebody be killed on the internet yeah. and talk to me about it. And so right from the moment that I heard about it, right from the moment I saw the video, I said, I am running for Ahmad every single day. I'm gonna, whether I wanna run, and you know as a runner, some days you wake up and you're like, ugh, and you know those first two kilometers, that first mile is the hardest. I run for him every day. I run by the police station, I run through the bougie neighborhoods, and I'm in my, in, in my, neighborhood and in my town I've never seen another black woman running ever I it's always just me and I run with him in my heart every single time and then when George Floyd died and I remember him saying he can't breathe sometimes I will push myself so hard when I'm running that I can't catch my breath because I want to remember this I want to be connected to this I want to experience this for him I want to run for these people who can no longer run and I want to run to disrupt this narrative around you can't even go out and get a little bit of self-care Ahmad was just running for self-care. He was running for himself. You can't even do that 
without being murdered. And I really wanted to shine a light on that. So every single day I run, I put up my stats and I hashtag it out that I'm running for justice for Ahmaud Aubrey. I'm running for justice for Breonna Taylor. I'm running for justice for George Floyd. They're not, they're my family. We are in this collective struggle together and I really connected my run. So now that my run has this like everything in my life, the social justice and this restorative justice lens. And it makes my run so much more meaningful to me because I'm doing it for people who would have wanted to do it and can no longer. Yeah. Hmm. I am really glad that you, that, that you have taken to running every day. I'm going to be honest. I am not running every day. <laughs> it's hard though. Um, let me tell you. <laughs> like, it is like I, I started training for a half marathon back in January and my training cycle has just completely fallen yeah. off since moving inside. But at the same time, I am, I find myself more uh, active in doing and holding people in my heart who are no longer physically with us by sitting still and finding stillness and recognizing what comes up in that stillness for me. Right. But then yeah. also I will say the Saturday after um, we, we learned of Ahmad's murder, um, I had gone out for a six mile run. Never in my life have I run six miles. Right. Like I was a mm -hmm. long jumper and triple jumper in my life. Mm -hmm. I was not like a distance runner distance, and I ran out yeah. and I did it right. Like, yeah. and I, and I felt it in my heart that day, right. Mm -hmm. That, that I have to keep moving. And I think this still goes back to what we were saying before that we find ourselves as black women, just trying to keep moving, just keep going, keep going, keep going. And I think mm -hmm. in what you just said too, that, you know, you're, you're out there still, you're doing this for the people who are no, who no longer have breath but I recognize that every day I wake up, like I am waking up for those people who no longer have breath, right? And so if I am not utilizing my full 15, 16 hours of being awake to do something mm -hmm. different, then mm -hmm. I might as well have just gone back to sleep, right? Like That's exactly I how I feel. Uh -huh. That's, you've articulated that perfectly. And when you say that, you know what comes up in my head? It, that part of uh, that part of Maya Angelou's poem, I am the hope and the dream of the slave. So every time I'm out there doing these things, I'm going to cry now. I know somebody in my ancestry would have died and would have loved to be, have the platform that I have, have the ability mm -hmm. to be seen like I have, have the ability to move through the world like I do. And I do it for them even when I don't want to do it because mm -hmm. somebody has to carry that torch forward. They handed it to me. We are their wildest dreams, right? We like, are, we are. And so I have, I do it, I do it in that spirit that comes up for me time and time and time and time again. Mm -hmm. Same. Mm. Um, yeah. 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 I love that. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Um, Ah, I'm just going to sit with it for a second and yeah. people who are listening, just give them a second to just sit with that. Stay tuned for part two of my interview with Diane Bondi to be released on June 20th. Thank you for listening to this episode of 824. If you would like to listen to this episode or other episodes again, you can find E24 on Apple iTunes, Anchor, or Spotify. 
Your listener support is much appreciated. And if you would like to donate to the continued creation and development of this podcast, you can choose to donate through Anchor. Thank you again for listening. And until next time.